0: Let's open our Bibles to Romans 12. I want to say public thank you to uh, the Graham family from generation to generation. They go on, it appears, and uh, this place has been very generous to me. To invite me to be with you is a great honor, and I'm thankful to them. Thank you, Bill, for your leadership of these seminars, and thank you all for coming and being a part of this. I love to be with people who love the word of God and draw it out of me. So thank you, Lord, for these days together. So we spent all of our time in our first session pretty much trying to understand the implications of the word therefore in verse one. I appeal to you, you church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, because of what's gone before, there are some roots, there's a foundation. These imperatives are not coming out of nowhere. The lifestyle that I'm going to unfold for you, Paul says, is not made up. It's not an arbitrary lifestyle. These commands follow from something. They're shaped by something. They're empowered by something. They're going somewhere because of where they come from. So don't miss the word, therefore, in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and then he sums it up with, by the mercies of God, to And now starts the, the things he wants us to do. And they go on and on, chapter after chapter here, because it really matters that we live a certain way. And the reason it matters is because we are created to show something to the world. God didn't create the world to be incognito. It really bothers me when people say they're going to live their Christian lives and not mention God, and not consciously attempt to bring people into the awareness of the God that they love. That really bothers me because he didn't make the world to stay hidden. The heavens are telling what? He goes on display when he creates the world. God is radically God-exalting. He is the most God-exalting person in the universe. The reason this universe exists and you exist in your unique personhood is to put him on display. So, before you get to the lifestyle of mercy, which is described in this chapter 12, the first thing he focuses on is the lifestyle of worship, right? Let's read the rest of verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you've been shown great mercy. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your bodies and present them as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, before he unpacks the Christian life as a life of mercy toward people, he unpacks it as a life of worship toward God. And if we don't get that order right, we will not be merciful people. There are so many do-gooders in the world who think Christianity is about do-goodism, just doing good things for people as though one could do a good thing for a person without longing for and working for them to come join you in the worship of God through Jesus Christ. There are so many. I've had battles in my own church over this, about what mission to the third world should look like. There are people who believe that you can love people without the design of bringing people to Christ and to worship Christ. Dig them a well. That's all you need to do. That's not all you need to do. Slaking people's thirst on their way to hell is not love. If it doesn't design by the meeting of the thirst to awaken a thirst for God and then fill it with Christ. And I said it carefully. I said, if it doesn't involve a design. I don't mean we succeed all the time. That's the reason we were able to work these battles through at my church, because some were hearing me or others say, if you can't get people to believe in Jesus, you should stop digging them wells. That's not what I'm saying. Our love comes back to us sometimes with repentance and worship and people see our light and give glory to our Father in heaven, Matthew 5:16. and sometimes they don't see it. but you keep loving them anyway, because that's the kind of God you have. So this order, verse one, present your bodies to God as an act of spiritual worship is very crucial that we see this first and not jump straight to the merciful lifestyle. Paul wants us to see our lives as worship before we see them and as a means of seeing them as merciful towards people. This word sacrifice... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let's be real clear. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were for atonement, largely. That is, a bull is slaughtered. We lay our hands on the head to identify with the bull. Its death takes the place of our death, and we are forgiven and of course everybody knew the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sin so these are all pointing to something they're pointing to the cross and so now we know that christ is our passover lamb first corinthians 5 7 christ has become our slaughtered bull slaughtered sheep and, and lamb and and all the atonement is finished So there's no mistaking that when it says, present your bodies as a sacrifice, that there's any atoning involved there. That's over, right? It is finished. When Christ died, all atonement was finished. And so sacrifice here is not an atoning sacrifice. So what is it? Why does he, he think of us as living sacrifices? What is intended to be communicated there about the way we worship God through our bodies? Now to answer that question, what I want to do is take these four words, bodies, living, holy, and acceptable, and just Open them for a moment each. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies. Now, that is not intending to communicate, not your mind. And we know that because in the very next verse, the minds come into play big time. Be renewed in your mind. But here he is saying you got arms and legs, you got tongues, ears, eyes, feet that go places, mouths that eat. I want you to present your body to God. Now, we need to linger here because bodies are a big deal in America, and we get it all wrong. And eating disorders are the price, and they are epidemic of all kinds, including boys now, as well as girls. The point of presenting your body to God, this is so obvious, but we just got to say it. So that our kids get a right sense of what they have bodies for. The point of offering our body to God is not that he'll be impressed with the way it looks. We're not impressive. And and the harder you work at it, the more you're wasting your time. You're going to get old. I'll have to tell you that. And if you have invested your life, it's going to be really hard to keep it up. What's the point? The point is that bodies are the way in the created world that we act. And God cares not about muscular bodies, but merciful bodies. Not about shapely bodies, but loving, kind, generous, servant bodies. Bodies that get up early and go bed to bed late caring for people. Showing up. Showing up with your body. Physical presence in people's lives. Physical touch. On people's lives. Physical sounds coming out of your mouth to build up and not to tear down. Oh, how much good can be done with these tongues. Or how much destruction can be done with this awesome physical thing called the tongue. The most powerful member of our body is in our mouths, James says. And if we could get this one under control... We could get sexuality under control and hands and legs under control. So bodies matter a lot, but they don't matter for the reason the television and all the advertisements say they matter. They're to be models of mercy, not models for Mademoiselle. You don't have to be the, the planet muscle guy to be of use to God. I just think we need to breed into our children why they have bodies. And just tell them over and over again, God is not mainly designing you to look a certain way, but to do certain things. I could give illustrations from my high school days. I mean, I, I was not good at this. Um, but I remember one of the least attractive girls in my class at Whitehampton High School that was the kindest of all and had so many friends. And there were very, very attractive girls who were very cliquish, they didn't have many friends, they were just clicky. And they designed to be thought well of. Whereas the girl that didn't have much, she was overweight, I, and, and she was so kind. You could not, not like her. And I just wanted design, I wanted to, I want to be like that. I want to breathe that in our children. Our bodies are not mainly for cutting a muscular or a shapely, or just a beautiful figure. I, there's nothing wrong with looking fine. But my, the Bible is so eager that women and men not invest most of their energies there. I'm so glad I married the woman I married. And she were here, she wouldn't mind you telling me, my wife is so absolutely pragmatic about the way she looks. It's unbelievable. I don't know if you spotted her here. You'll see her at lunch. you see how short her hair is. You know why her hair is short? Because in the morning, she sticks it under the thing and goes, like, like, like a dog, and, and she's done. She She doesn't spend any more time getting ready to appear in the world than I do. She's got totally different priorities than that, and I'm glad she does. So uh, not everybody's the same. Just make sure that when you present your body to God, you're presenting it as an instrument of righteousness. That's the, that's the phrase from chapter 6, right? Members, members of God for righteousness, I want righteousness to happen with my hands and my tongue and my face. As long as I'm on this thing, let me just stick in another little princess that I didn't plan to. Um, I want Christian women to to design the way they dress by Christian values. And, And one of the values is I want people to take me seriously as a person, not a body. Now, I can just tell you, women, there is a way to communicate to men and other women, notice my body, and there's a way to say, notice my eyes, notice my face, notice that I, I am here as a person to interact with you at an intellectual and an emotional level. I'm not presenting you a neckline or whatever to to attract your attention here. So I'm just I just I mean, I'm sure this crowd does not need this sermon. So um, but you have maybe those, you know, who do and um, present your bodies as an act of worship to God. That is. Let your body say how much you value God. Figure that out. What kind of acting, what kind of makeup, what kind of hair, what kind of exercise and eating will show God is my treasure. So that's body. Second word, living. Present your bodies as a living Sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship sacrifices die on the altar. And he says, now be a living one. Which must mean that there's a way to. Die and be alive. Which should remind you of texts. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his. What what happens on a cross? You die. So we do die. We die to everything in our lives that would diminish the way people think of God. This is about worship. He is on a track to make our lives spiritual acts of worship. So when you think about, I must die, I must sacrifice, I must be alive, and I must die. What you die to is anything that doesn't make God look better. You want to die to that. And be alive in worship. Third word, the word holy. Present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Holy. Another word for holy, I think, in this context would be righteous. Because in chapter six, it says, verse 13 Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness. You could say unholiness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So you're living. And your members. That's these appendages of ours. Your members as instruments of righteousness. So. Presenting yourself holy to God is I'm using my hands and all the instruments of my body in the service of doing what's right and holy and good in order to make God look beautiful. And lastly, in this little sequence, acceptable to God, what does that add to the word holy? It simply makes God explicit, acceptable to God What is acceptable to God? And the answer is, God is acceptable to God. The standard that God has for what's acceptable to him is himself. The thing that God values most in the universe is himself. Otherwise, he'd be unrighteous. He'd be a liar, in fact. If he didn't value what was supremely valuable, he would be a liar and saying that something is more valuable than himself. Which means that when you contemplate what is it about me and in my living sacrifice that he might find acceptable, the answer is anything and everything I think and feel and do that calls attention to his worth. So when you think, I want to be acceptable to God, think, what kinds of things do I think, do I feel, do I do that make Him look valuable to me? Not me valuable to Him. See the irony there? You see the paradox? I want Him to find me, my behavior now in Christ, acceptable so that he approves of the way I'm living. And the way I think about it is what he approves of is himself reflected in my values. Treasuring God, valuing God, counting God as infinitely worthwhile is what worship is. That's what worship is. And he's after us. To do spiritual worship. So God is pleased when he is honored. That is, he's pleased when we. Worship. So here's the sequence. Summing this part up. Verse one. God displayed his mercy. By sending his son. And thus vindicating his own righteousness. While he saves Sinners, So that he can be both just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. And we then are lavished with mercy because of Christ. We then see that and embrace it. That's called faith. Treasure it. And that's called worship. So now he has shown mercy. We are resting in it savoring it, and we begin to live out of it with our bodies so that people see he's valuable to us and his value is seen in the way we don't value other things and value him and shapes our whole lifestyle so that he's constantly being shown to be the supremely valuable one to us and other things that look valuable to the world are fading back into the background. People are seeing that and they are being drawn to his value. That's the sequence. He shows his value in being merciful to us. We see it, begin to enjoy it, be satisfied by it, live out of it in valuing him. And others begin to see that. So everything here in verse one is about the value of God, the worth of God. We are being called first to be worshipers before we are called to be merciful. Now the question becomes, how do you show that? How do you live that? What does it look like at the horizontal level more specifically? So let's read on. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Specifically, verse 2. How does that come about? Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's start with that negative. Do not be conformed to this world if your lifestyle is going to be one of displaying the worth of god you will need to be out of sync with the world because they don't value god supremely that's not what the world is so by definition if you're going to be verse 1 Your bodies are going to be displaying the worth of God rather than the worth of self. Then you're going to have to be out of sync. You're going to have to be not conformed. Now, here's what i like to do with that phrase, because that's not a simple thing to figure out. I want to contrast don't be conformed to this world with something else that Paul said, namely, First Corinthians 922, I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. That does not sound like nonconformity. That sounds like conformity. I have become all things to all people that I might save some. Or, listen to this one, 1 Corinthians 10.32. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, that is an amazing statement. I try to please everyone. In everything I do, I have become all things to all people in order that I might save some. So what has become of do not be conformed to this world? Now, Here's, here's what I have found very helpful here. And it, it relates especially to this discernment that follows in the verse. Andrew Walls is one of the foremost reflectors, people who reflect on the missionary movement today. He's written several books. One is called The Missionary Movement in Christian History. And in his first chapter, he develops what he calls the indigenous principle of the church and the pilgrim principle of the church. Indigenous you know what that word means? Indigenous. When something is indigenous, it has become part of a culture. It fits in. It belongs. I mean, I'm, I'm indigenously dressed for America right now. I wouldn't be indigenously dressed maybe in Dubai if I were to wear it dressed like this. I'd have to have a robe. This is indigenous stuff. There's a lot of variety to indigenousness, but we're indigenous. And pilgrim, the pilgrim principle means you're not at home. You're on your way somewhere. This world is not my home. I'm, I'm just a passing through. I'm an exile. I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. I'm a refugee. Now, that's true. And this is true. Christianity. In 2000 years has found its way into almost every culture because it has an amazing ability to become indigenous. The forms of the Christian faith around the world are unbelievably diverse. Songs that are sung and patterns of family life and the way people dress and the way they do worship and the way things are done from culture to culture... As Christianity, authentic Christianity, is so diverse. And yet, even though Christianity has this amazing incarnational impulse, Jesus becomes from God to fit in. Everywhere it goes, it brings a critique. It brings a shaking up. There may be a generation or two where there's polygamy, but not for long. It shakes up. It fits and then it shakes. It fits and then it changes. This amazing thing. And and if you try to figure that out in your life, you'll just join the rest of us in one mega tension. Your kids are going to try to figure this out. And missionaries try to figure this out. And pastors try to figure this out on Sunday morning. And and the way people dress, and how you do worship, and how you do evangelism, and do you fit or don't you fit? How does the pilgrim and the indigenous principle work in the Christian life? So what you're hearing in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, is a loud trumpet blast of the pilgrim principle. You don't belong in this world. You're an alien here. You're in exile here. You've been bought out of the world. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Live like a citizen of another kingdom. Now, that's all true, and that needs to be heard. But in order for it to be heard properly, we just have to hear it in tension with that other stream of truth in the New Testament. I have become all things to all people that I might save some. Jesus said, let me just give you some examples of this from the rest of the New Testament. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus put it together. Don't take them out of the world. They need to be there, but they're not of the world. That's a hard place to be. That's where you live. That's a hard place to be. It's easy if you kind of Include yourself in little Christian enclaves and and don't have any relationships with the world. But if you believe in being salt and light, this becomes a really tough issue. Or 2 Corinthians 2, I mean, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Paul says, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. I believe in the principle of separatism. There is a doctrine of separation that the church needs to recover. Fundamentalism is defined by it, sometimes in excessive ways. But most Christians in America are not probably excessively dwelling on the biblical doctrine of separation. 1 Corinthians 5.9 brings the balance. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. So there you have the tension. Yes, there's a place for separation. No, I don't mean go out of the world. I mean hobnob with those who are sexually immoral. If they're not Christian, how else are you going to win them? Another example, First Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly... And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now that just sounds so fit in. Let me read it again. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with, this is the Bible. It's the Bible. To work with your own hands so that you may live properly before outsiders and depend on no one. Or 1 Timothy two, same thing. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life dignified in every way. Now There's so many Christians for whom they say yes. That's what I want to do. I want to fit in, have a nice, comfortable life, do my work, don't steal, keep the Ten Commandments, and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. I'm not going to mess up my life by getting involved with all the pain of the world. I just obey the Ten Commandments. I don't steal, and I don't commit adultery, and I don't take the names of the Lord in vain. I keep my Sundays, and I tell my kids to obey me, and... What more could you ask? Everything. Like Christ-likeness. So, over against that fit-in kind of text, which is true. You don't want to be a pain to people in your neighborhood. Be a good neighbor. You don't want to be depending on Uncle Sam if you don't have to. Work. Of course, of course. But that's so minimal. Okay, here's the other side. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Now you start doing that, your neighbors aren't going to like you. <laughs> Take no part in the fruitful works of darkness. Expose them. Talk about abortion. Talk about racial injustice. Talk about homosexuality. Talk about environmentalism. Figure that one out. Shake up your church and your community. All, here's another one, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's not fitting in. If you're being persecuted, you're not fitting in. So you see the tension? One text just sounds so fit in. And another text sounds so out of sync. And that's the New Testament. Now, there are reasons for this. And I think we'll begin to feel how to navigate our way through the pilgrim and indigenous tension if we know where it came from. Why? Why is it like this in the world? Let me give you two or three reasons for why it's like this. Number one, a view of creation. First Corinthians ten twenty-five. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For now, get get this: Paul is saying in this tension where there's some meat in the market that's been offered to idols, and there's meat that hasn't been offered to idols, and we don't know which is which, and so we don't know if we can eat meat in the market. And Paul says, eat it all. Fit in, fit in. Don't make a pain of yourself. Don't go up to the guy who's selling the meat and say, which one of these is offered to idols? Just buy the meat, eat the meat. And then, and then he gives a reason. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a doctrine of creation. So one truth about creation is he made it all. He owns it all. You're the king's kid. Eat it all. However, there's another truth about creation. Isn't there like it's fallen? Romans eight twenty, the creation was subjected to futility. The whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And first Corinthians 731, the present form of this world is passing away. So over here you have, he made it all. It belongs to your father. You have the world at your disposal. Eat it. Use it. It's yours. And over here, it's all fallen. It's woven through with corruption. It's going to be burned up in the last day. You're an alien. You're in exile. Beware that you're not conformed and look like you're really at home here. So figure that one out. They're both true and at some moments in your life one is going to function to give you liberty and another one is going to function to give you a radical distinct lifestyle that helps them see the creator fatherhood over here and the radical Lord who calls you to die and serve and love over here so the first reason for why this tension exists is because of a doctrine of creation that is full and robust in its positive nature and also very realistic when it comes to how fallen this created world is. Here's a second reason it exists, namely a doctrine of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's John one fourteen. The word, the eternal son of God became indigenous. He took on a body, a Jewish body, carpenter body, got hungry. He fit in. If they looked at him, they wouldn't say, whoa, God. They didn't. They didn't. He just looked ordinary. He fit in. He was indigenous. He spoke a language. He got hungry. He got tired. He had friends. He loved. He got angry. He grieved. He fit in. He was human. Totally human. However, he came to his own and his own did not. Received him. They crucified him. So he didn't fit in. At all. We must get rid of this man. At any cost. He's got to go. So he was there. Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden. Surrounding himself with a group of people who loved him. And another group couldn't stand him. And wanted to get rid of him. And that's the way it'll be with you. You do fit in. You you don't wear weird clothes. You don't want people to think about your clothes. I hope. It's not the point. You're there. You are speaking the language of the people around you. You're more or less dressing the way they do. You eat the same foods they do. You live in the same kind of house they do. You drive the same kind of car they do. You're not a weirdo. But they will want to crucify you. Sooner or later... If you live and love and sacrifice and be God centered the way Jesus was. So a doctrine of Christ helps us understand why we're in this fix. Here's one last reason for why this tension exists. A doctrine of the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is here. Present and it's not here. We read you the verses. Luke 11, 20. Jesus said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom of God had come. And yet it hadn't come. Yes and no. Already, not yet. For example, Luke 22, 18. I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It hasn't come yet. Well, you said in Luke eleven twenty, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God had come upon you. And now you're saying you're not going to drink again until the kingdom of God comes. And the answer is it has come in the king, in part, in power. Many kingdom blessings are among us. The forgiveness of sins is among us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is among us. The empowering of God to live kingdom-like lives is among us. But we still die. We still get sick. We still sin. Oh, the groaning of the already and not yet. And we long, how long, O oh Lord, how long will this not yet plague me? So those are three reasons. A doctrine of creation, a doctrine of Christ, a doctrine of the kingdom, which simply gives some explanation to why you have to live in a tortured Tension between should I be like them or different from them on this point. Now the question is, how do you figure it out? Now how do you know? And is it surprising then what comes next in the, in the text? How can you know what to do? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that here's what we need right in view of that tension this is exactly what we need so that this word dokimazo in greek means to approve and approve it's got both meanings Test and prove and discern and then embrace so that you may prove, discern, approve the will of God. Do I do a pilgrim thing here or an indigenous thing here? The will of God. It's going to be good. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be acceptable right now. Tomorrow, it may be different. But right now, in this situation, I need extraordinary spiritual discernment. And that's what that verse is about. So it's, it's, all, it's all making sense here that the nonconformity to which we're called is not an easy thing to understand. From moment to moment to moment, what to say, what facial expression to have, what gestures to use, whether to give to the beggar or not to give to the beggar, all these hundreds of decisions about being in and not of. We have to have this happen. Something's got to happen to our mind. It's got to be renewed so that we discern. This is so different. Them trying to live the Christian life by a new list. It just won't work. I mean, if you try to replace the law with something else like a new list or my bad list of sins that I had that I felt like I should do before I got a Christian, I'm going to replace it with a new list. It won't work. There's just too many thousands of issues facing us day after day for which there's nothing on the list. Most of our lives are lived making choices moment by moment that are on nobody's list. You never faced this situation before with your 34 year old kid or with your two year old kid or with your spouse or with this disease. You never faced this before. It's not in the Bible. This situation I can't find in the Bible. There's no blueprint. There's no pattern. What do I do? And and the biblical answer is, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what God is calling you to do. So we need to talk about that. And I want to make sure that I underline again something from last night, namely the, the newness that we do here is growing out of something that has happened to us. Turn back to chapter six, just to, just to say it again and say it clearly. Compare Chapter six, verse six and chapter six, verse eleven, just to get the framework before us again about what Christian. Change is chapter six, verse six, we know that our old self, old person, old man was crucified with him, with Christ So when you believed in Jesus, you became united with him. His death became your death and your old nature really died. This is not you hope it did. Maybe it did. I hope I can make it. But it did. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now look at verse 11. So, you must consider or reckon or count yourselves dead to sin. Now there's the Christian genius of change. Are you dead or aren't you dead? You're dead. So count yourself. Now if that's a foreign language to you, you need to linger long because there's the Christian life. If you don't believe you're dead, you'll try to make yourself dead in order for God to prove you. But if you really believe I'm dead, my punishment is past, He's on my side. When he died, I died. When he bore the punishment, I bore the punishment in him. My judgment is behind me. And now what do you do? You become that. You live that out. You you grow out of that. You don't try to make that happen again. That's what Vicky was saying. It took her a long time to learn. It took all of us a long time to learn. We're still learning it. Every morning, your old nature will try to live. In Christ, it is dead. And your job, day by day, is to look at it and say, Dead! Dead! That is to live out of what you are in Christ. Cast out the old leaven. For you are unleavened. That's First Corinthians 5. It's over and over again in the New Testament. What you are in Christ is fixed, firm, done. And now you're called. Become that in your bodies, in your minds. So I just wanted to put that before you again, before we tackle this mind issue here. What is wrong with the human mind? If it's got to be renewed, because it says in the renewal of your mind. So Paul evidently thinks something's wrong with your mind. What is it? A lot of people think what's wrong with the mind, a lot of non-Christians sure there's bad in the world. They're willing to admit there's bad stuff. Now, what's wrong is people don't have enough education or information. <laughs> I just don't think people can say that much in public anymore because, because when you have more education, you develop more elaborate scams, more sophisticated terrorist plots. More remarkable schemes for embezzling. More nimble and fast talking, rude radio talk show hosts who use their brilliant minds to make people look stupid. Including right-wing Christians. So, that's not the answer. <laughs> The mind doesn't mainly need more information with which to concoct its elaborate sins. What's wrong with our minds? Well, what's wrong with our minds is described back in chapter 1. They're depraved. And the essence of our depraved minds, chapter 1 verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind, is that our minds became foolish and exchanged the glory of God for images. Verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. The human mind has a spirit. I get that weird notion. From Ephesians four twenty three, which says, "Be renewed in the spirit of your minds." That's that's the closest analogy in the New Testament to Romans twelve two. Romans twelve two says, "The renewal of your mind," and Ephesians four twenty three says, "Be renewed in the spirit of your mind." What would A spirit of a mind be. What does that mean? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here's the way I take it. The spirit of the mind is the mindset, the viewpoint, the posture of the mind, the demeanor of the mind, the bearing of the mind, the attitude of the mind, or you might say the bent No mind is neutral. Don't think, okay, I've got a heart and it longs and has these desires that incline one way or the other. My mind is the neutral uh, adjudicator assessing the worth to which my heart will incline. Baloney. The mind is in the firm grip of a bent. An inclination. And we use our minds mainly to exalt Our selves. That's the main problem with the mind. The mind is quick as it can be to defend itself. Get a little squabble with your spouse. Man, if she fingers you for doing something you know and you've agreed you shouldn't do and she points that out, you know what your mind will do? Bang! It's got three things she did yesterday. It is so quick. It is so amazingly nimble and smart to remember and to articulate her problem. Why? Gets me off the hook. And I don't want to be on the hook. Because I got a mind that wants to be exalted. And you don't tell me my sins. That's what's wrong with our mind. Or to make it more God centered, we're not just about using our minds to protect ourselves and exalt ourselves and be preoccupied with ourselves and make sure that we come across well, sound good, keep down criticism, keep up approval. Really what's wrong is God isn't the treasure of our minds. We are. We're not bent To think on him and and see what's beautiful about him and see what's great about him and glorious about him. Our minds are all consumed with ourselves. Oh, to be free of self. I tell you, when I think about dying and going to heaven. I don't. I don't have the notion that finally I will like myself. Like, finally, the fulfillment of the self-esteem gospel. (laughs) You know what I dream about? Finally, I will enter into an everlasting experience of what I've only tasted a few times. Namely, glorious self-forgetfulness in the presence of beauty. The healthiest moments of our lives are when our minds are moving out to greatness, seeing it, studying it, loving it, embracing it, delighting in it, analyzing it, just being caught up in it. I don't think heaven will be a hall of mirrors in which we like what we see. That's what a lot of people seem to think. So our problem with our minds is that they don't worship. They don't delight in God. They're not bent towards him. They're bent towards self. They're not God-worshipping minds. They're self-worshipping minds. So the question is, how in the world are they going to get renewed? And... um, The answer is. When you look up this word renewal, it occurs one other place in the New Testament, and it gives us a clue. It occurs in Titus 3, 5. Paul says this. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. There it is. There's that word renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renewal of the Holy Spirit. So my answer, what needs to happen is that we need the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can make our minds God-centered, God-directed, God-infatuated, God-exalting, and free us from our bondage to self-preoccupation and self-infatuation and self-exaltation, self-affirmation. Only the Holy Spirit can do that amazing work. And the question is, how does he do it? And the answer is, he uses two things. I'll mention these and we'll stop and take our break. The answer for how he does it is set up for us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which goes like this. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Now link that with verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So we're going to be transformed. and He says that beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who will bring about this transformation. So how does it happen? It happens by beholding the glory of the Lord. But but that involves two things that the Holy Spirit has to do. For us or we won't be changed. One is an objective external act and the other is a subjective internal act. The objective act is that the Holy Spirit needs to so run the world that he brings us into contact with the gospel or with the beauty of Christ objectively displayed in somebody's testimony or in the Bible or in a story or a tract. Somehow our brains have to connect with the truth out there. Gospel preaching, Bible truth, and the Holy Spirit wonderfully organizes it so that it happens. I can tell you stories, maybe I will next time, or you can ask me in the in the Q&A time. Tell us one of those stories about how the Lord navigated that way. Um, the other one from the inside out is that, when we see truth, we don't like it. We hate it. We're blind, according to Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the Holy Spirit's got to do another work. He has not only orchestrated our relationships such that we found ourselves in the Billy Graham crusade or reading a tract, or reading our Bibles in the middle of the night, or listening to a friend over lunch, or hearing a radio program, or, or anything he has orchestrated in his providence and brought us into contact with the objective portrayal of Christ in the gospel, now a second thing has got to happen, namely, the blinders have to be taken off. God has to sovereignly speak, let there be light, Second Corinthians 4, 7, so that we suddenly, where we had just for a long time seen foolishness or stumbling block, now we see the power of God and the wisdom of God, the glory of God. So beholding the glory of God, we are being changed. Our minds are being renewed. And how does that happen? Objective input of truth and subjective work of the Holy Spirit to make us inclined to the truth. You know how to sum that up? Read your Bible and pray. Saturate yourself with your Bible. Read it cover to cover. Read great books that display God. I have to go back two, three hundred years to read the kind of stuff I want to read. It's the Puritans who were just so full of God just so saturated with God. You read that and the Holy Spirit has brought you there and you're seeing all this glory. But what if your mind is just back with this pornography? Nothing's happening here. The Holy Spirit does that other work and you plead for him. Oh, God, open my eyes, open my eyes that I might see you because Second Corinthians 3.18 says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed, transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Our minds are altered and renewed by the Holy Spirit's giving us truth and opening us to it so that we're conformed. To it. Let's draw this to a close here and we'll pick it up next time with what is the will of God that we now are enabled to discern? How does that work? Father, I pray that as we take our break. Our minds would not cease to be engaged with your truth. Oh, how we need your help. So, Holy Spirit, stay with us, stay on us. Break us of all of our love fair with ourselves. And grant us to be so satisfied with Christ and his great work and person that we spill over in merciful talk to each other us to go out of ourselves to each other in these break times. Get us beyond small talk to deep talk quickly. There's a lot of needs here and they could be met by testimonies of grace by somebody who's walked through the same thing. So move us, I pray, to the point where your mercy to us would become your mercy through us now to each other.